This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freakamere Pod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail and another great bonus episode. I'm Doc and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, on to this week's content. This week's bonus episode covers an aspect of trail prep that I know I have underestimated in the past. Yes, today we're going to cover 
the physical preparation you should undertake prior to hopping on any kind of extended hike. And joining us to help guide us through our physical prep is Rowan Smith, who has quite a bit of experience in this area. Welcome to the pod, Rowan. Thanks for having me on board, Doc. I'm really, really looking forward to having a chat today. I love chatting about this stuff and I love uh, having a bit of yarn on a podcast. So yeah, very, very excited. Okay. First thing we should clear up for our listeners is you don't seem to have an American accent. <laughs> no, not quite. Not quite. So I'm down in uh, Sydney, Australia. Um, but it's funny enough in Australia, a lot of people go to me and like, oh, did you grow up in England or something like that? Because apparently my Australian accent isn't so good sometimes. So, you know, <laughs> so hopefully it doesn't confuse too many people. <laughs> Very good. So it is six o'clock on the West Coast of the United States where I am right now, 6 p.m. What time is it there in Australia? Uh, we're 1, 1 p.m. on a Friday, Friday afternoon over, over where I am at the moment. So just the end of the week. Oh, you've already made it to Friday. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good feeling. <laughs> Now, I'm going to ask you something that I think is, is pretty much an American phenomenon, but I want to check just to make sure. Um, we have this thing called, this concept called uh, trail names. So you, when you're out on the trail, especially on an extended hike, a long trail, uh, and something happens, you say something, something about your personality, and one of your fellow hikers is going to give you a trail name that kind of characterizes that. And so is that something you've heard of in the past? And if so, do you have a trail name? So de definitely heard of it. Um, okay. It's not quite as big down here, but um, so people still do it a little bit. I can't say I've got an official trail name, which everyone calls me by, but a couple of times when I've taken people out on a hike, they have called me coach the whole time. So I guess uh, technically that, that's probably about as close as my trail name gets, which I don't mind. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? On the, on the podcast here, we go strictly by trail names. So we're going to try out coach tonight and see if, uh, see if that works for you, see if that sticks. And I think it's got a good ring, you know, coach and doc, coach and doc. That's uh, that's a, a good pairing right there. Yeah. Don't mind that at all. Okay. All right. Hey coach, have you listened to any of the episodes on the John freaking your podcast? Well, little bits and pieces, little bits and pieces. I can't say I'm a, I'm a diligent listener. As I said, we were having a chat before and um, I've heard really, really good things from um, some of my clients down in Australia who who really diligent listeners and they absolutely love it. So that's sort of where I, how I've found myself over here today. Fantastic. Hey, let's give those diligent listeners, some of your clients, give them a shout out. What are their names? Uh, so Andrea, um, so Tamara, and also uh, Linny, um, big shout out to all of you guys. If you're listening today, I hope you are. I'm sure you are. Um, and I'm sure a few more will be coming on um, to listen to this episode as well. So for all of you guys, big shout out. All right. And Andrea, Tamara, and Linny, shoot me an email or, or catch me on, uh, on Instagram, send me a message and let's hear about some of your adventures. So don't be shy out there. All right. Awesome. The reason I ask if you have listened to the pod is because we have a regular feature on the podcast called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And that is something uh, where I'm going to, that's a point in the episode where I'm going to turn to you at the end and I'm going to ask you for your pro tip, some kind of uh, insight, piece of wisdom, uh, tip or a trick you can share with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience that much better. So don't be surprised when we get there. It's towards the end. All right. Too easy. Okay. Very good. I have a feeling it's going to be something about, uh, you know, physical prep, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. All right. All right we'll see how we go. <laughs> Another feature we've been doing this season is the must bring gear review. So here's how it works. 
if you were to let your stra- let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day hike, what is the one specific gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. Uh, Coach, I almost called you Rowan. Coach, have you done any multi-day backpacking out there? Yes, yes. Done a little, a few bits and pieces here and there. And okay. like on that question, I think the the piece of gear that I absolutely love and I get all my clients to do this and they, they love as well is always on a multi-day are bringing um, a set of compression recovery types um, to wear either in camp or the night after. Like they're obviously don't weigh very much. They're pretty thin material um, and they're so, so, so beneficial for just helping the legs just feel a little bit fresher and just recover a little bit quicker in between days. And so if you wear it for a couple of hours, hours around camp or if you've really beat up wearing it overnight um, while you're sleeping, you can just wake up in the morning and just feel a little, have a little bit more pep in your step and feel a little bit fresher and, and I love it. So for me, always bring them and um, pretty much every photo of me in camp is me stomping around in my, in my recovery tights and um, yeah, absolute must bring for me and I love it. Good pair of tights. You can't go wrong. Very good. Very good. All right. Hey, before we get to the, the fitness aspect, let's, let's, uh, let's play around a little bit with your origin story. Let's, let's back up and talk about your background, where you grew up, uh, kind of your hobbies and how you got involved in backpacking and, you know, outdoor fitness in general. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, basically uh, I've grown up in Sydney, Sydney, Australia, and I've lived here most of my life. Um, I probably got into not hardcore backpacking, but like hiking. My first introduction with, from that was pretty early on. And we do a lot of, I was doing a lot of bush walking, which was, we just call sort of day walking in the bush with, uh, with my old man, my dad and my brothers from a very, very early age, probably, I don't know, six, seven, something like that. Um, as I sort of grew up, as I, you know, started extending that out, doing more with my old man, then I joined Scouts, as a lot of people do over here, and I'm sure it's pretty big in the States as well. Um, and so that was where I was first introduced to some of the bigger adventures, so my first overnight hikes, and, you know, my first sort of, you know, actually learn how to pack a pack and get prepared, and, you know, all, all the stuff we do at Scouts, which is great. Um, and then it's always been sort of a, a passion of mine of sort of getting into nature, whether it is sort of bushwalking, hiking, or we're pretty close to the beach and I was a big into water sports growing up and the whole being a part of nature is just always been not just to go out and explore and challenge myself, but really just a sort of place just to relax and unwind and, and really clear my head. So I've done that sort of all my life, um, you know, in, in different ways than others. Um, alongside that, like that was one big passion of me, like getting out and having adventures in nature. The other passion for me growing up was sort of sports in the sense of, you know, I lived for soccer, then I um, really had aspirations to become like a world-class sprinter, um, you know, coming out of high school, which unfortunately I was just not good enough. Um, and as the the old thing goes, if you can't do it, you teach it. So I was like, oh, well, I'm failed. So well, yeah, I was a failed sprinter. So I went to university, I studied sport and exercise science, with the intentions of getting into strength and conditioning or sports performance for sprinters. Um, as I went through the uni, I sort of got to the, came to the conclusion, hey, actually, this isn't such a massive passion of mine working with high athletes. It's not something I love doing. Um, but I do like working and working with the everyday person in you know, regards to helping whatever they want, whether it's to get better on their sports on the weekends, put some muscle on, some fat or whatever it is, or help get on top of aches and pains. So those two things sort of went 
parallel those two passions for a long time. So my, I was personal training for a long time. I was still going out hiking, exploring, doing, um, you know, traveling around the world, really, really chasing things. And then they all sort of collided those two things probably about five years ago. Um, when I come back into Australia, I've been living abroad for a few years over in the UK and um, I got a job at one of these simulated attitude gyms, um, which was relatively new concept for me. And this is the first place that I got exposed to hikers and backpackers and mountaineers in a professional sense. So as I said, I'd done it my whole life, but I'd, you know, I'd always been young, fit, never had any issues. I never really considered the training side of things for these adventures. But I had all these people come to see me, things like Everest Base Camp and Kilimanjaro and all these massive bucket list adventures, which they were wanting to prep for. Um, and they were just wanting help because it was a big thing outside their comfort zone. They wanted to get ready for that. Um, and so I was, you know, enjoying that, really getting into it. But I came to the conclusion pretty quickly that, you know, the information available for these guys, um, you know, in regards to physical preparation for hiking and other adventures, it wasn't particularly good. There's not, there, at that time, there wasn't a huge amount of like, quality information out online. You plug into Google, you get all these articles that just said absolutely nothing. The stuff that we were doing ourselves at the gym you know, it, it wasn't really the best, in all honesty. Like, I knew I could be doing better, but the sort of culture at the gym was a certain way of training, which I didn't really think it was the best in the world, but that's just what we did. Um, and then slowly but surely, I sort of got, uh, came to this conclusion. I was like, look, there's so many people that need help, whether it's for preparing for these adventures, whether it's for overcoming an ache or pain, like knee pain or foot pain or back pain for these adventures, whether it's, you know, they've got their first multi-day hikes and they're stepping up to something big. And they just needed help. And I knew that I was in the position which I'd had the background in hiking. There was something that I loved. I'd had the background in education and in fitness and sports performance. And I knew I was in a position I could actually make a really, really good change here and not only make a positive impact in the space, but actually be able to work in a place where with people who have done, which I was incredibly passionate about. So not just losing weight or putting muscle on, but, you know, hikers are awesome. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so satisfying working with someone saying, you know what, I see a picture of them, like, you know, top of a mountain, but like, I helped you there. Like, that's, you know, so, so satisfying. So I came to the conclusion, I was like, look, there's room for opportunity here. People need help. I'm the man to do it. Um, and that's when I sort of stepped out on my own. I started my own business, um, just called Summit Strength, which is sort of an online personal training business specifically for hikers and backpackers. And that was about three years ago. Um, and that's sort of what I've been focusing on for the last few years. So that's kind of my origin story in regards to hiking and, and fitness and and how it's all managed to collide in, in the best way possible. So you are the perfect guest for our, uh, our listeners out there who have big hikes coming up. Uh, you're not just some, you know, regular gym coach working on, you know, pumping, pumping weights and, and whatever else might be happening in a, in a normal gym. You are very specialized. You are catering to a crowd uh, who is on the trail or is, you know, going to Everest base camp, like you said, or Kilimanjaro. Have you ever worked with anybody in preparation for like the PCT or the AT? Yeah. Yeah. So um, probably the beauty of the world, um, you know, the world that we live in these days is everyone's connected so easily across the ocean and, and online personal training is a relatively new concept, um, but it's something that's made much more possible these days. Um, so I've been doing, online personal training for about three years or so and so probably i've got a third of my clients in australia i've got a third over in the states and probably a third scattered through europe and other countries and and yeah i've definitely helped with a few people leaning into the pct into the at um all different sort of uh you know, shorter hikes through 
um, through the states, um, the JMT, and and yeah, so lots and lots of people over your side of the world have been preparing for these these big things. Like obviously in the last twelve months, that's been a little bit uh, a little bit out of whack. Um, but there's been some uh, yeah, so definitely helped a few people towards those things. Nice. And I want to go back to a comment that you said about you know working with hikers and just enjoying their company because they're they're just really cool people. And I want to echo that because one of the perks of of doing this podcast is. Uh, being able to talk to so many of those types of folks. And you're exactly right. I mean, they, they are just entertaining and down to earth and friendly and uh, you know, just a, a, a devil may care attitude. It's just uh, fantastic talking to these people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the hiking community, you know, worldwide is just is such an amazing place and it's just so satisfying to be a part of that and yeah, connect with so many people. So yeah, I, I love it. Mm-hmm. Let's get a little bit into your hiking experience. Um, in terms of day hikes or multi-day hikes in Australia, what, what kinds of opportunities exist there? And what is the topography like? So, so for, me, for me personally, like there's, there's loads and loads of hiking all, all through Australia. Like Australia itself, big old island, all around the edges. Um, you know, there's ocean, there's people live through three quarters of the edges of Australia. In the centre, not so much. There's a lot of desert. There's, you know, a few cities. There's, there's not a huge amount going on. Um, but there is lots of opportunities for um, multi-day hikes and day hiking all, all through. It's a big, big sort of national pastime of the bushwalking and the day hiking and, and all of that. And it is a very, very big deal or big uh, common. For me personally, um, a lot of sort of my day hiking has been centred around Sydney where I live. Um, so we, you know, where we live in Sydney, it's pretty flat. There aren't, there aren't any mountains over here. Let's just say that. There's no mountains compared to the US. The tallest mountain we have, you can drive up on a car. It's a, you're never going to really find any massive elevation or any attitude or anything like that over here. Um, but it's sort of, uh, you know, a lot of the day hiking I've done is just sort of around the local neighbourhood, going through local bushlands, yada, yada. If you go two hours inland from Australia, there you get into the Blue Mountains, which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. It does have a little bit of elevation. Um, you know, it's a World Heritage area. There's some stunning, stunning scenery. And that's t- typically where I tend to do most of my overnight hikes um, around there. It's really easy. You've got trails that load up from, you know, just two days to, you know, five, six days if you want to string it together. But this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scenery. Um, actually, on the weekend, it was really, really funny. I went on an overnight hike and I actually went along the same route as my very, very first overnight hike that I did when I was like 12, 12 years old at the Scouts or something. We went through the same campground and I was like, oh, this, uh, this was a lot harder when I was younger. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, this wasn't a very long hike. Um, but that was, yeah, that was absolutely beautiful. And, um, and then one of the big hiking destinations in Australia is, so we've got this big island um, and then down the bottom, there's a smaller island, which is a state called Tasmania, which has some of the most beautiful hiking in Australia, absolutely. And a lot of people in Australia are going down there now, more so than ever, because international travels off the cards. And there's so much just untouched scenery down there. There's so many multi-day hikes opportunities down there, which are pretty iconic for Aussies. For myself, I've been down there a couple of times and just been d- doing day hiking around. I was down there for different reasons and big adventures. But even if you're just setting out for a few hours, like the opportunities down there just to see some stunning, stunning scenery is just, it's so accessible. So it's absolutely beautiful. So that tends to be what I've been doing around Australia for, for most of my life. Right. What is the main trail in Tasmania? One of the main trails? Um, probably one of the most popular is the Overland Track. 
um, which is a sort of, a, I think it's about seven, eight, nine days, depending mm-hmm. on how quick you want to do it. And they've got a good infrastructure with it where they've got like huts you can stay in. So you can, you know, rough it and bring all your tents, but there are huts available. Um, and it's just got some, yeah, absolutely outrageous scenery. And I've got a lot of people actually, this is sort of high season for it at the moment. And a lot of people are on it at the moment or coming off it at the moment. And yeah, I'm getting a little bit jealous. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I remember we had a, a past guest who had done some hiking in Tasmania and talked about it. And it just from the description just sounds absolutely epic. So definitely a, a bucket list item. Yeah, for sure. And, but Australia is not all you've done. You, you, you ventured out. I know you said you lived in the UK and I know from your hiking resume, you've got some other experiences across the world. You want to highlight any of those? Yeah. So um, for me, like a big portion of my sort of life after after high school and during university was sort of traveling around and well we call it backpacking around it's a bit different to the backpacking we're talking about today but just having a you know your life on your back and just cruising around and exploring so I've sort of done a lots and lots of sort of shorter adventures around many you know little different countries so when I was in the UK um, I was most of the hiking I did was actually um, with my older brother, I was staying up with him when he had um, his little baby, my little niece, and we we're actually really different. We were hiking with the with the little baby, so we were um, had the the chest strap on and we we're cruising along um, the Lake District, which is absolutely beautiful, and up in sort of the north of England, which is lots and lots of trails there. It was a little bit different because obviously you're restricted with a baby, and there's sort of you know certain hours. Some days you can get like a good six hours and be quite happy. Some days you'll get twenty minutes and be like, oh, <laughs> I've got to go backwards. So I don't know any kids myself yet but that was a quite a interesting intro in, into that um some of the other stuff i did was you know over in sweden i was sort of um been to sweden a couple of times and they got some beautiful 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 country there and um it was kind of unique in the, the hiking i was doing there because it wasn't really an intended hiking trip um but i'd sort of one time i'd been there intended to be with a girl who i was together with we broke up early on in the trip, I had all this time to kill. And I was like, Oh, what am I going to do? And I was pretty down in the dumps. And I was like, I I don't know what to do. So hiking was the first thing that fell to. So it ended up being sort of, you know, seven, eight days or a couple of weeks, even of just day hikes and just walking, 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 walking through some beautiful like islands near, near Stockholm and just through some beautiful scenery. And it wasn't so planned or anything, but that for me was (laughs) survival. So that was a bit interesting in regards to that. Um, With some of the more, uh, you know, I've sort of done little day hikes through, through Thailand and Laos and um, to other countries, Indonesia and other countries through Southeast Asia when it comes to sort of bigger hikes, um, well, hang on, hang on. Before we get to the bigger ahead hikes, of myself. <laughs> you, you, I mean, England, Sweden, Thailand, New Zealand, Laos. How, how, how do you, how did you get around to all these places? I mean, what was the the occasion? I mean, you just listed off uh, a series of countries that uh, a world traveler who is retirement age would be happy to to uh, brag <laughs> yeah. about, and you've done it at, at such a young age. So, um, so yeah, I, I have been pretty lucky in regards to that. Um, as I said, like when I came out of high school, I sort of took a year off and did a bit of travel over in, um, you know, for a few months over in Brazil, which we'll talk about in a sec. Mm-hmm. That was sort of my old multi-day stuff. But then I went to uni and over in uni over here, we sort of have periods of uh, three month summer breaks every single year. Um, and my whole mindset during that time was I'm getting an education, but one of my priorities is travel and exploring. So through nine months of the year, I would put my head down, I would work around my full-time uni schedule, save every penny I could. Um, and then for those three months, every single year, I would jet off to somewhere. So I would go to, um, 
for two months at least. So I went through, you know, loads of different countries during that time. And when I was traveling there, it was dirt cheap in the sense of if I could afford an airfare, I'd end up living off a few dollars a day wherever I was. And it was, uh, yeah, it was good. So that was a big portion of my life there. And that's how I got through quite a few places. And then once I finished off uni, um, I sort of took about two and a half years of, I moved over to the UK um, and was living there, but it was more working to travel so again all the money I was making was going into the travel fund to explore and the beauty of Europe is there's just so much opportunity for like just weekend trips and week trips and you can just jet off to a different country like within a few hours and it was just absolutely amazing and then on the start and the tail end of that I spent a couple of months going through Southeast Asia on the way across because it's on the other side of the world and, and the way back so um, and then the other bits and pieces have just sort of been holidays over this time, um, you know, when I've been lucky enough to get a week off here and there. So I've been pretty lucky on that front and because it has been a big priority of mine, um, <laughs> I'd say, compared to a lot of the, a lot of my mates who are saving for mortgages and things like that during those years, there were different priorities in regards to our spending, but I don't, uh, don't really regret it for a second there. Did you learn more at uni or at uh, traveling the world? Oh, <laughs> um, Definitely, I learned a lot more about myself traveling the world. Um, I learned some good stuff at uni, which has uh, been good for me these days, particularly where I've ended up because the stuff that I learned at uni is much, much more relevant to the everyday hiker than it was to the everyday person trying to lose five kilos. Um, so that's been really good. But in regards to a worldwide learning, definitely traveling. Fair point. I, I like the way you put that. You learned, you learned a lot about yourself uh, while, while traveling. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. We've had a number of guests on the pod who have kind of done the same thing where they have uh, worked, they've, they've done these jobs just to accumulate money to either travel or to hike. And they get back from their trip and they, they, they find a job and they work until they get enough money to you know, take the next adventure. So kind of a, a theme that, that a lot of our, our guests have. So, yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to have an employer during a lot of those years who would happily let me take three months off and come back into my role. So I actually worked for the same gym for a good four or five years throughout all that. Um, So I was really, really hit the jackpot in regards to that. Nice. Okay. Let's hear about these, these longer hikes. Uh, You referred to Brazil. You did some time in Brazil. Yeah. So Brazil was the first big adventure for me. So out of high school, the intention was, uh, I wanted to spend a few months uh, traveling over in South America, ended up being, I realized, oh my gosh, South America is huge. And Brazil itself is huge. Like (laughs) when I actually looked at a map. So I was like, you know what? I've got four months. Actually, I'm going to spend four months here. Um, So I spent my quite a, you know, the four months in Brazil, cruising along, traveling around. And, and we did some really, really, really cool hiking through there. And it was very much impromptu and it was very rough and raw. Um, You know, sort of the stuff we did, it was just, throw throw together a few things in the backpack and away we go but it really really was amazing so even just like the first week in when we're staying in Rio and I was sort of acclimatizing myself to being in another country just the hiking opportunities just outside the city like going up to the big statue of uh uh, the big Jesus statue like yeah that's beautiful in itself like cruising along there and there's some little waterfalls and beautiful green scenery um the first sort of multi-day hikes I was doing was in this absolutely outrageously beautiful national park and um, was called uh, I'll probably butcher the pronunciation these days but Chapada La Diamantina and um, which is the, the national park of diamonds I suppose <laughs> I can't remember I, I'm not <laughs> going to argue with you on that one okay yeah. <laughs> but um but it was really really cool in the sense that I'd gone from you know spending about a month in you know 
in cities basically and they're sort of getting used to it and there's certain cities that you got to kind of be on edge and look after yourself as a you know you don't want to get yourself into trouble and you got to really be on on point but getting to this national park it was just the complete opposite. It was a small little town we were staying in. Um, there was just hiking trails and waterfalls everywhere. And it was just a complete polar opposite of the cities where we could actually relax, let our guard down, chill out. And the, the saying they said was like, if you leave your wallet on the street in this particular town, you can come back two weeks later and it'll still be there. It's like just that beautiful, beautiful place. And um, there, when I first got there, I was doing a little bit of um, day hiking, just exploring around to chase a couple of waterfalls by myself. Um, and then one day I was walking through town and this guy that I'd met the first day, he was like, hey, man, you, you want to come on a hike tomorrow? And, um, and he was a hiking guide. And I was like, you know what? I've got nothing else going on. Like, why not? And he's like, yeah, pack your bag. I'll provide food. Um, just make sure you got, uh, got closed for a few days. And I was like, all right. <laughs> he was like, we're going to go see a couple of waterfalls. I was like, all right whatever <laughs> that sounds fine um but it was it was really really outrageous in the sense that it was absolutely beautiful it was just me another aussie girl and this hiking guide uh, marcelo um but the start of the hike in itself it was he was like look you know the trailhead is a good hour away but the roads are really 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 dodgy and rough so we can't drive there so we either have to get a four-wheel drive um or we have to get motorbikes and it was like to be honest motorbikes are cheaper um so we'll do that and I was like, all right, I've never been on the back of a motorbike before, um, but that's all right. And yeah, these guys just roll in with motorbikes and we've got a full pack on the back. I've literally never been on one before. And we're just going on this outrageously rough, 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 just dirt and sand road, just cruising to the trailhead. And before we even start the hike, it's just adrenaline city. And like you go up a hill and it would just, the, the motorbike wouldn't be going any further. So literally the driver would be like, get off. You have to hop off full pack, run up the hill alongside the bike. And then it'd be like, come on, come on, come on, come on. And we hop back on the bike and cruise along. And, and that was like an hour. And I was like, my gosh, like even before the hike, this has been an adventure. But, um, but and then it just ended up being beautiful. We just cruised along for a couple of days. Each night we slept under a waterfall, like literally right next to and under a waterfall. Um, just had little fires. The Marcelo just cooked us some beautiful meals. We're swimming. Um, you know, there was a few snakes that we came across, which you know, I got closer to snakes there than I did in Australia. It was a bit, bit, um, bit backwards. But, um, but that was absolutely beautiful. And that will always stay with me as just being, it was such a spontaneous thing. I didn't know what to expect at all, but I, it absolutely stuck with me as one of the most beautiful hikes I've ever done. Unfortunately, I lost my camera, so I lost all my photos on that. Oh, but, I was um, just going to ask about some pictures. Oh, that's yeah. terrible. So I remember swimming out under a waterfall with my camera in my mouth. Like this is before phones took, you know, anything and camera in my mouth to get like the perfect shot. I had all these beautiful shots and yeah, I got my camera pinched, unfortunately, but, but that was all right. And so that was that. And that was a beautiful national park and the other stuff I was doing, um, was up in the Amazon. We took this really, really cool trip when we went from uh, city at the start of the Amazon. Like the Amazon's huge, obviously. And we sort of took this river boat, which went for about five days. We slept in hammocks and cruised along the Amazon um, into a few different cities. Um, we sort of stopped off halfway and we did a little bit of hiking. I can't even remember the name of the city actually, but it was, again, it was kind of spontaneous in the sense that it was just walking through the street and a guy, you know, we were chatting with you. like, Hey man, I'm a hiking guide. Do you want to <laughs> come out for a hike? And we're like, oh, all right, <laughs> why not? We're not doing anything. Um, and it was cool. We sort of set up in a, in a local family's uh, little hut. We just set up a hammock and sort of stay, used that as base camp. And we just went sort of cruising through, um, you know, certain a little trail through the Amazon, just checked out all the massive trees, saw all these like, crazy animals and crazy bugs and, 
beautiful fruit and just like, you know, that sort of um, almost typical picture that's in your head when you think of the Amazon. It was, it was kind of like that. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is all right. And we sort of did a couple of those and, um, and they were only in sort of two, three, uh, I think the longest was about four days. Um, I couldn't tell you for the life of me what they were called. Um, but yeah, there was just beautiful, beautiful memories there. And that, yeah, that time, it was just so, so special. And yeah, you know, even now I'm getting pumped up talking about it. So, so there you go. Yeah, coach, I've got some follow-up questions. I got some, some things I want to unpack here about those stories. First of all, there seems to be an abundance of hiking guides in Brazil, just, uh, you know, walking around looking for potential people to take on hikes with them. Yeah, I think it's that sort of um, those towns where I guess tourism is the main kind of income. Um, and, you know, at certain times, I think we're a bit of out, out of season. So I guess there was more more workers than work possibly. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I guess the easiest way to find work is if you see someone who looks like a, a traveler or a tourist, which are pretty easy to spot. It's like, hey, <laughs> you want to go for a hike? And it's like, why not? You know, show me, show me something special. So, so yeah, it was pretty cool. And so how, how big were the bugs in the Amazon? <laughs> the one that blew me away, which won't, won't sound so special, like it's not a massive spider or a massive like beetle or something, but it was a massive ant. Like that freaked me out because we got big ants in Australia, but I heard some ant like something like ridiculous, like a couple of inches long. And the guide was like, do not let that bite you because that'll be the end of you. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm stayed away. So, so that actually of all the mundane bugs there are, the ant actually blew me away. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I can, I, I can, I can feel that. Yep. Excellent. And then how about, uh, what kind of gear do you use on the, the, uh, multi-day hikes? What, what, uh, What's your setup like? So on those hikes, like when I was over there, like that was real, real basic stuff because the trips I was doing, they weren't really centered around hiking. And I was living with literally my entire life was like six kilos, like my entire life, not my hiking life. So for that, I was just like hiking in thongs or barefoot and I was cruising along and sleeping in a hammock and, you know, there wasn't, wasn't much in terms of, you know, it's like hiking in cotton clothing back then. Like, it's crazy. Like, you know, it wasn't much in terms of gear back then. Um, these days, I'm a little bit more mature on that front and I'm a little bit smarter. So um, typically, you know, I'm still a little bit basic with my gear. I don't get too crazy, but the, the typical stuff is, you know, we've got the merino shirts and shorts. We've got a really cool cool uh, few local brands over here. Um, there's a, a bloke who's really doing some good stuff in the space. He's got Otti Merino and it's a sort of homegrown uh, Merino, homemade, uh, Australian made, really, really high quality. And I've been digging that very recently. So, so that's pretty much my clothing setup. Um, depending on the day, like I've been trying to transition into some more sort of uh, barefoot shoes purely for the fact that I feel I always used to hike barefoot before I ended up ripping my toenail off one time on the first day. So I was sort of, I'm trying to transition down to them, but for me, uh, it's a, it's a slow thing. Um, so because I've got a few more kilos on me than I used to not muscle. So it's not, um, it's not the best thing. So I'm slowly, slowly getting there. Um, but yeah, my, my setup is super basic. It's just that a couple of poles, um, a little roll, rollology cork massage ball, um, usually eating really, really basic foods. And yeah, so my setup in regards to, I know hikers love their gear and love talking about it, but mine yeah. is not exciting at all. Okay. <laughs> all right. Very good. Any other hiking trips you want to tell us about? 
So the other, the one that I really sort of, probably the biggest one, uh, or the, big, the most special one, one of the most special, everything's the most special in all honesty, but um, a couple of years ago, I went over to Papua New Guinea and we did um, a trail that's called the Kokoda Trail, which for, if you've been to Australia, this is one of the big cultural or big like national identity items that we have. And it's something that a lot of Aussies as a bucket list item. It's always on so many people's lists. One day I want to do this Kokoda Trail. Um, Australia is, you know, a relatively young country, you know, a couple of hundred years of, well, a couple of hundred years of modern history, let's say. Um, and out of all that, there aren't, a huge, there aren't a huge amount of sort of national events that we really, you know, as a whole nation identify with. Um, but this particular trail, it was a big deal for Australia during World War II. Um, and the Australian sort of soldiers, you know, fought with the Japanese along this particular trail. And, and it's one of those sort of cultural icons, which everyone knows what you're talking about. It is a very, very sort of patriotic thing. Um, and essentially it's a, it's in the, the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Um, it's only a 96 kilometer trail. So it's not technically super long. Um, I can't remember, it's about 200 miles or a little bit less, something like that. It's not technically super long and you'll do it anywhere from seven to 11 days, depending on um, you know, how quick you want to do it. But it's the case where it's just at just constant, constant elevation change. So it's just up, down, up, down, up, down all day, really steep, really rough terrain, just roots everywhere. And the big thing was sort of back in the war, it was, you know, all the Aussie soldiers were doing it. It's a lot of mud. It's very, very rough. Um, and they got a lot of support from the locals there who really, really helped them through like the Papua New Guinea locals. So it's a big deal for us. And a couple of years ago, I sort of organized a trip, but brought over a couple of clients and, and my, my girlfriend. Um, and we did that trip and it was really, really special for the fact that, you know, we'll walk, walk along this route, which for them as a, as an Aussie, it's a real big deal for us to hear about the stories and, and what everyone went through and you know we're walking through in hiking clothes and we got our boots and we got our pack and we got our poles and and then you hear the stories of the aussies um and you know the japanese soldiers soldiers did as well but you know they've got nothing they're lugging guns and they're pulling things and they've got like 20 kilo packs and everyone's sick and everyone's you know it's crazy um so it was really really special to do that and just connect a little bit with you know our national history and and hear a little bit about the Papua new guineans and who live there and you know um and who are still part of more who you know that's their local area and it's it sort of brought things into perspective as you know how soon or how recent like you know that history was in the sense that they're still picking up bullets off the trail you're still seeing these like lakes which were craters from like you know explosions and um yeah and it was really really crazy so that was probably one of the more special hikes i've ever done was it was very very strenuous it was very very tough but it was it was nice having that sort of connection around okay, I'm not just challenging myself, but I've actually got, you know, this, uh, this historical reason behind doing this. And yeah, so I, I, I rate that very, very highly up or, um, nice. Nice. How many days did it take you? I think we did it in nine, um, off memory. Um, and so, yeah, we did it in about nine and it was, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty tough, but we got through it. <laughs> yeah. How long ago was that? Uh, that was December 2019 actually last year went by in a flash yeah, right, so right. yeah so that's it and are you with the same girl i sure am so she's no longer no longer the girlfriend now the fiance so so there we I, go. I was gonna say if you if you were on a a nine day hike as you described you know there's no hiding out there you, she's gonna know everything about you you're gonna know everything about her and so if you guys are still together after that you guys are a forever couple so congratulations yeah. 
there was uh, one moment, we joked about it before the trip and there was literally one moment on the trail where, as I said, it's just constant up and down, up and down, up and down. And Ali had her hiking poles and she was working at the limit of her like endurance. She was like in the zone, pushing it out. Um, but then we were constantly changing up and down and she was constantly having to change her pole length because she's got like, you know, knees dodgy from netball and dance. Um, so she was really making an effort for that. And you could just see she was at limit. The frustration was building and building and building. And I was like, at one point she was messing around with the pole. I was like, oh, so she was frustrated. I was like, if I say a word right now, this is probably going to be the end of our relationship. <laughs> so I just kept my mouth shut, let her do her thing. And then like that night I was talking, she was like, yeah, I was like, if you'd said anything, I would have, <laughs> it would have been <laughs> game over for the hike. So, uh, so we got through that little test. <laughs> Coach, you are a wise man. Well, well done, sir. Well done. And does she still hike with you? Um, occasionally, occasionally. So um, she, more on more so on the day hikes um so sort of things that are a little bit easier i think she she said basically at the end of that trail because she's not a big hiker herself she does a bit she was like all right i've done that for you that was tough that was muddy that was dirty the next hikes we're going to do something like pretty so stay in huts you know type home in japan where we can scan a hot tub every night or something like that so i was like yeah fair enough <laughs> nice nice okay well we have established your hiking credentials we've established your fitness credentials we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about what the long trail hikers this year can do to prepare to physically prepare for the upcoming challenge so stay tuned we'll be right back after this this is brett gravelin from team curl you're listening to the john freaking mirror pod all right welcome back and before we get to the the physical prep i want to go back just for a second coach and i want to ask you uh i I could see you light up as you talked about the kakoda track and what it meant to you and i'd love to hear the top three moments from your experience on the kakoda do you have those yeah Yeah, so i think coming at number three was probably the first 20 minutes of the hike where you'd heard i had all this build up everyone being like it's so tough it's so muddy yada 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 and and we roll into the start which is at owen's corner where we started from and literally the first 20 minutes was just straight into it straight down in the mud cruising along and it was just like all right people weren't exaggerating like this is gonna be tough and and that was actually really satisfying for the fact that you know, we'd taken our prep seriously. We had our poles and all that. And we were like, all right, we haven't uh, underestimated, overestimated this. We've done the right thing. So that was, that was number one. Um, Number two was a probably, I can't remember what day it is, sort of in the middle, it was like five or six. Like it was a really, really hot hike. Like it was, you know, jungle conditions. It was rain every day, but it was steamy. It was humid. We were sweating like nothing else. Um, And there were rivers along and there were sort of like, there's a little places to wash in that, but it was all, you know, it, it was hot. And then on day five or six, we were at a place called Templeton's Crossing, which was, it must've been down a valley or something like that. And we went into the river and it was just ice, ice, ice cold. And it was really, really surprising because we'd been, you know, hot water, hot, um, hot environment, just having that actual, um, finally, I'm cold for the first time in four or five days. Um, that was beautiful. So we sort of just hung out there, sat, sat in the water, turned blue, shivering, like it was great. So that was a big, uh, a really nice memory. And just being able to sit by the fire after that, you know, and warm up, like 
when you've been stinking hot for so many days, that was awesome. Um, and then I think, again, I can't really remember what day it was. I don't know, don't know if it was before or after, but one of the days rolling in, um, we finished the hike relatively early. We were sort of camping in one of the villages. Um, and we just, me and the missus decided to have a little walk around and, and we just sort of caught it at exactly the right time. And I'm sure every hiker listening to this will sort of, you know, this will resonate with them in some way or another, but you just managed to catch the sunset at the exact right time where we'd had that massive day. We'd been absolutely knackered. We'd been dirty, you know, we'd been pushing through it, but just uh, get changed have a little like you know a little bit of wipe down and then walk out and just see you know the sun setting over just the jungles of Papua New Guinea just thinking I'm in the middle of somewhere where I've never you know really considered I would be you know there's miles and miles away from you know a city I'm doing this I'm feeling good I've prepared for this and just everything sort of came together with that sort of sunset and we got a few really nice pictures of that and like just us together and and just you can just see the happiness on our face in that that situation. So that was a real, real big highlight for us because it all just sort of came crashing down at that moment that where we were and what we were doing. Nice. And that kind of reinforces my belief that the sweetest moments, the sweetest memories that you know guests have recounted have come after some of the toughest days. And I think it's it's because of that contrast that they'd really stand out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And your camera didn't get pinched this time, did it? You saw pictures? <sighs> Well, it didn't get pinched. I still got the pictures, but I just, I was trying to find my camera, this exact camera for my hike on the weekend. And we moved apartments the other day and I put all my valuable stuff in a box somewhere. And that was the one box I've lost. So, <laughs> so I've lost that one as well. I don't know where it's gone. <laughs> oh no. All right. Hey, let's talk, let's talk about your specialty here. Let's talk about physical prep, getting, getting hikers and, and backpackers prepared for their adventures. Um, Let's start off with with an easy one. I know that uh, a lot of hikers who are dreaming of the big trail may not live very close to trails, and so how how does how can a hiker get fit for hiking if if they're not next to a trail or near a trail? Yeah, and this is kinda was one of the big questions that got me into doing what I do because you go online and you see, okay, how do I get fit for hiking? Or you sign up with a, you know, a lot of Aussies when we're doing these big trips, they sign up with a trekking company and they get given this sort of preparation plan. And nine times out of 10, it'll be something like go out and hike three times a week. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, awesome. If you can, that's absolutely great. And all power to you. But a lot of us don't have that opportunity, whether we got like um, work commitments, we've got family commitments or whether we just don't live near a trail in itself. Like it, it does get restrictive, but one of the big sort of, founding beliefs around my business was we can still get in a really, really, really good physical position for the trail for any adventure you may be doing, even if you can't get out to the trail, you know, every week or every couple of weeks, and you might be able to go and get out once a month, or you might be in the middle of winter and you might not be able to actually go out and hike. We can still get in a really, really good position for that. And essentially what I sort of typically talk about are sort of three types of training we generally want to do. Number one, first and foremost is well, not first and foremost, but one number one, which always gets overlooked by hikers, is doing some type of strength training, um, whether it's at home, whether it's at a gym, whether it's in a local park or whatever it may be. Now, this is something that gets neglected by so many hikers, but it has so many, so many, so many benefits for you on the trail. Specifically, if we want to go down the big three is number one, um, it improves something that's called movement efficiency. So essentially, the stronger your muscles are, every single step you take, 
uses less energy. So as hikers, you know, we're for hiking multiple hours a day, multiple days, multiple weeks, whatever, that obviously adds up and getting a bit of strength there can make a massive, massive difference. Number two it is the single best thing you can do to prevent pain and injury if you do it right. So a lot of hikers do struggle with things like foot pain, chin pain, knee pain, back pain, particularly if you don't have time to get out on the trail and condition yourself to, to that. This can be a really, really good way of helping you with that. And then number three, it just makes ascents and descents much, much easier. In the sense, if you're stronger, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory, use less effort to get up, up and down hills. So that's number one. And every single hiker, regardless if you're hiking or not, should be doing that in my opinion. But if you, you know, don't get out to the trail, spending, you know, two 30-minute sessions, two 40-minute sessions a week can really, really go a long, long way. Second thing is doing some type of alternative longer cardio. So if you can't actually go out hiking, just have a think to yourself of like, all right, what can I actually do? Some type of aerobic exercise for a sustained period of time, which will get me close. It might be, I might not be doing this for four hours or three hours or something like that, but what can I do for 60 minutes or more? Now, this might be someone, this might be cycling, whether it's indoor or outdoor. This might be swimming. This might be even walking around the local neighborhood. This might be, you know, going on the rower or the elliptical or the gym or something like that. But all these things, as much as they're not exactly like hiking, they'll still be really, really beneficial at developing a lot of the same adaptations in the body, which is going to be relevant to your hiking and specifically developing something that's called your aerobic capacity, which is essentially the ability of your body to produce energy using oxygen as a fuel source, which is the single most important thing you need to develop for your hiking. So if you can spend a bit of time doing this at home, in a gym, around a local neighborhood or whatever, that is going to definitely translate over to when you're on the trail, when you can eventually get out there. And then the third thing that I often recommend is doing something that's called hiking-specific conditioning. Now, what I mean by this is having to think about, okay, on my upcoming hiking, what are the things that I typically struggle with? Or what are the things that are typically a challenge? And, you know, generally the usual things can come down to this is something like um, I get, you know, out of breath when I go on hills, or my legs burn out when I'm going up hills or I struggle carrying a pack on my back or I struggle keeping up with a hiking group or something like that. And have a think about what do I actually struggle personally with? And then once you've identified that, think about actually what can I do around the local neighbourhood or in the local gym or at home which can kind of replicate these challenges. Um, and so I can improve on these things. It might not be exactly the same, but it can get relatively close. And so you can identify your own personal weaknesses and then you can put in sessions of 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes at home around the local neighbourhood. You work a little bit you know, harder pace than you may with hiking, but it's going to directly help you on the trail. And I think we'll go into a bit more detail around those ones in, in a moment. But put those three things together, a bit of strength training, some type of longer cardio, and some type of hiking-specific conditioning. None of that requires you getting out on the trail. None of that requires hours and hours of your time um, if you don't want it to. Um, but it can get you in a really, really good spot to you know, get out and enjoy your, your hiking, whether it's, you know, just a local day hike, whether it's an overnight hike, whether it's a massive through hike coming up. Um, those three things are going to be your pillars of, of preparation. Yeah, it would take hours and hours of my time if I struggled with everything in hiking. You know, if my back hurts and I struggle uphill and I struggle downhill and, uh, you know, I, I can see that that, that uh, hiking specific conditioning could, could uh, take a bite out of my schedule. Very good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, I've got a I've got a buddy that I've done a few hikes with, a uh, trail named Big Biz, and uh, he is always complaining about his knee pain. Any any advice on on how to address knee pain? Yeah, so knee pain is something that 
is a big part of what I do day to day. And there's so many hikers that struggle with this in, in different different ways, shapes and forms, whether it's people who if you've had a knee reco at some stage or another, and they've had a pretty traumatic knee injury, or whether it's someone who just gets some mild knee pain on longer days or downhills on the trail. It's something a lot, a lot of hikers do. Um, and again, like, as I was saying before, with this topic, typically when you go online, um, the information on there is incredibly, incredibly poor. And that leads to a lot of people really thinking I'm stuck with knee pain forever because I'm doing these things. Um, that are recommended online, but it's not doing anything. And typical examples is like, you go online and say, get stronger legs. And it's like, okay. And they're like, just do squats and lunges and that'll, that'll fix you. And it's like, well, yeah, in theory that works, but in practice, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So essentially when it comes to preventing knee pain for hikers, there's sort of three steps that I always take, always might take my hikers through. Um, some people will have a bit more emphasis on one step, some people the other, and that's when it comes down to actually testing certain things out, seeing what's going on in the body. But typically three things that we want to look at. Number one, as I said before, strength training and structured strength training can be the single best thing you can do to prevent both pain and injury. Now, when we're specifically talking about knee pain, essentially we, we want to be targeting a few particular, a few particular muscles that support the knee. Muscle number one or area number one is your quadriceps, which is the front of your thighs. And they do a big portion of our, you know, of our hiking. If they're not strong enough, they'll basically fatigue too early and they'll put extra pressure through their joints. And, you know, we don't want that. Num number two is your glutes. So your bum muscles, you know, they do a big, big portion of stabilizing your knee, particularly stopping your knee actually knocking in when you're going downhill, which can aggravate the knee a little bit. Um, and we want to strengthen that up. Number three is your hamstrings. So they go hand in hand with your glutes. That's the back of your thighs and they go a long, long way to help and stabilize the knee and then often gets neglected, but just as important as your calves itself. So the calves do actually help stabilize the knee um, and they can be very, very important. So essentially making sure in our week that we're doing some type of strengthening for these particular exercises, uh, these particular muscles in a way which isn't putting you at pain and discomfort, which is a point a lot of people miss because if you're doing exercises and you're doing it and it hurts, well, actually, typically we don't actually want to be doing that because you may, yeah, it's not something we generally want. So to give you a few ideas around what I mean by this, just exercises, obviously it's a podcast, I can't demonstrate this right now, but if people plug it into Google or whatever, or YouTube or whatever, for your quadriceps, one of my favorite exercises for this is something called a step down, which is pretty much standing on a step, slowly lowering one heel down to the floor and up. It's pretty much exactly the same thing you're doing as when you're actually stepping down, a, uh, stepping down a rock or a step on the trail. Absolutely amazing at developing quadriceps strength, a little bit of glute strength, ankle stability, knee stability. It's, it's literally one of the best exercises any hiker can do, and that's a great place to look. Um, for your hamstrings and your glutes, you might be doing something like a single leg deadlift or a glute bridge, something like that. Both of those, most of my clients are doing in one way, shape, or another. And for your calves, doing some type of calf raise. Um, you know, it, it's not rocket science. It doesn't have to be too complicated, but putting those things together, very, very, very effective. So step number one, step number two, we want to look at mobilization through certain muscles. So typically if the knee in itself, traditionally or basically in a perfect world, the knee wants to be what's called a stable joint, meaning it doesn't want a huge amount of movement through this particular joint, aside from the flexing and extending that it typically does. So when we're bending our knee. Generally, we don't want a huge amount of our other movement going through it. There will be a little bit, but we want to minimize that. Essentially, and then the joints below and above it, so the ankles and the hips, they're typically what we call mobile joints, meaning they want to be relatively free. They want to move around. They want to have a big, big range of motion. And naturally, that's how we want. Now, what tends to happen is if people, 
in our day-to-day -day life, if the hips get tight or the ankles get tight, what will happen is the body will try to find movement in those joints. And it'll be like, okay, the hip is supposed to be free. I want to find movement through this hip for a certain you know, thing. And they'll try to find movement. But when that's too tight, the body will be like, all right, I can't find movement in this particular joint. I'm going to have to find it somewhere else. So what it does is start to allow extra movement through the knee, which as I said, is typically, you know, a bit more of a stable joint. We don't generally want a huge amount of movement and that can lead to a little bit of discomfort. So if people are going through, um, do have knee pain, you want to have a look at the ankle range of motion and the hip range of motion. And if either of those are tight or restricted or whatever it may be, then we can say, all right, spending some time stretching, spending some time foam rolling, spending some time mobilizing. That's actually going to be really, really beneficial. Um, and some people will need that. Some people won't, as I said before. And then the third step is not really preparation, but it is something everyone should be doing. If you have knee pain, it's just making sure you're using trekking poles or hiking poles. You know, they're, they're, they're such a beneficial thing for, for knee pain in itself. They're such an easy win. Um, and really, if you're dealing with knee pain, use them, just use them because they make such a difference. So that's typically my three sort of step solution to knee pain. There's a little bit more goes into it. And obviously there's a lot of peripheral factors, but strengthen up supporting muscles, mobilize the muscles above and beyond, uh, above, above and below, and make sure you're using some type of hiking or trekking poles when you're on the trail. And if you stick with that, um, it can make a pretty significant difference. Yeah. New hikers, especially, they don't, they don't like to use trekking poles. They think they look weird with trekking poles and people are going <laughs> to think of, think of them uh, as, as being, you know, weirdos with, with trekking poles, but they are so valuable. Uh, you, you know, you may, you may use them to kill time on the flat portions of the trail. There are a lot of, you know, I, I don't find a lot of benefit when it's, when it's pretty flat, but uh, uphill and downhill for sure. I mean, that is such a benefit. Yeah. Absolutely. And when it comes to the downhill, like there have been some studies to show that using trekking poles on certain downhills, um, certain inclines can reduce the forces through your knee by up to 30%. Now that's absolutely huge um, mm -hmm. considering every single step we're taking is, you know, doing a lot of work on the knees. And if we can take that amount of force by just using poles, like my gosh, but I know, I know the dork factor, like, on the weekend, two people commented on my polls were giving me grief <laughs> on, my, on my hike. And they were like, oh, what's a young guy like you need polls for? I was like, look, if I got pictured without my polls, my clients would kill me. So <laughs> I'm using them and I'm glad I had them. <laughs> nice. And speaking of elevation, I know you said earlier that you don't have any big hills in, uh, in and around Sydney. So how, how do you train for elevation without, if you live in a location without um, any kind of major elevation yeah so this is a this is another really big one um particularly initially in sydney a lot of people preparing for you know kilimanjaro was one of the big ones that i started with and sydney you know, we have some hills we're luckier than some in regards to hills and stairs but there's no mountains at all and there's no even the hills they're not big hills <laughs> they're, they're little hills so typically when we're looking at this um there's a few um, a few different areas we want to be looking at. So, and a lot of the stuff I'm going to be talking about today, it does cross over. So it's like, if you, you know, struggle with certain something, one thing and another thing, a lot of the stuff will be similar. So you don't have to end up doing two dozen things, but essentially if we're looking at elevation, um, three things we want to be focusing on. Number one is the strength training comes into its own again. So if we want to get technical for a second, the way that sort of strength training helps with elevation is it improves something that's called your strength reserve. Now, strength reserve is essentially the difference between your the absolute maximum force your muscles can produce and the strength required for a given task. 
So if we're thinking about you know, going up a hill and we're thinking of say, hypothetical example, the numbers are going to be way off, but say you're doing a step up a steep incline and every single step you're taking requires 15% of your maximal strength. Now, over time, you know, that's going to fatigue you pretty quickly because you're going to be, have to put a, quite a bit of force into every single step. Alternatively, if you, you know, go away, you do strength training for four weeks, you come back to this exact same hill and your strength is increased and every single step that you take now requires 7% of your maximal force or 10% of your maximal force. That's going to make a dramatic difference to not only your perception of how easy that feels, but also the amount of energy you'll spend over the day. So if you have no, don't have access to elevation, um, but you're preparing for something like that, strength training, you want to be hammering that home. Um, and this doesn't, like, I say strength training, sometimes people picture, you know, going to the gym, lifting heavy barbells and yada, yada. And yes, that is a way of going about it. And that can be very effective if that's something you enjoy. But alternatively, if you don't like that, you can still do loads of stuff at home with a pack on your back, um, you know, with simple exercises. You can still get very, very strong. It really depends on, you know, what type of personality and what you enjoy. So number one is strength training. Number two is we want to be looking at doing, finding some type of way to replicate elevation climbing. Now we may not have access to mountains. We may not have access to, um, to longer hills, but you want to have a look at what we can do to try to replicate that sort of ability of your muscles to go again and again and again and again and again up on an incline, um, which is obviously a big part of it. So there's a few different things you can look at. I'm going to list out about a few different ones. First and foremost, if you do have access to a hill, it might not be a big hill, but it might be a small hill or a set of stairs. You can do repeats on that. So, you know, this is a typical recommendation for hikers. A lot of people are familiar with this. You know, find a hill, take you two minutes to climb, climb up to the top, go down the bottom, repeat, or do that with a set of stairs. Pretty, pretty standard recommendation. If you don't have access to one of those, if you're literally living on the flat, um, if you have access to an apartment block or an office tower, a lot of people in Sydney do this and you can climb up and down um, the fire escape or something like that. Um, I know over in States, a lot of people recommend going up in there if you can get access to a local stadium and go up and down the bleachers. Um, though a lot of my clients say that those tend to get locked up these days. So it's not quite as accessible as, as it may be, but that can be a, um, an option. Um, the next option from there is if you can ac get access to like a stair climber in a gym or a Jacob's ladder or something like that, you can obviously train on there. Um, the next option from there is if you're like, look, you know, those all sound great, but it's still not going to do it for me. Um, the next ones, they do get a little bit less exciting, but they can be still very, very effective. So the next one is, um, doing a little bit of sled pushing, which actually can be pretty good. Um, it does take a little bit of DIY knowledge, but um, if you don't have access, like a sled is basically as simple as it sounds. It's a, it's a sled, you push it up and down. Um, the actual pushing motion is pretty similar to you know, the way the muscles work with elevation. And working with one of these on the absolute flat can actually be pretty, be pretty beneficial for your elevation training. So if you have access to a sled in a gym, um, if you make your own sled, you can go onto Google and just type in make my own workout sled and there's loads of great videos. I've seen one of my clients has used a lawnmower, an old lawnmower, and they, she's got a hubby to like cement a block on top to add extra load and she's done that, which is great. Um, or if you don't have access to any of them, you can even push, and push a car back and forth in an empty car park. Um, it's a bit weird, but it does do the job. Um, hey, and then coach, the next coach, level, coach, we can't tell my wife that mowing the lawn is going to help me with, uh, training for, for hiking. That's not going to work over here. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep, keep that between us. Eh? That's right. Just between us. I won't, I won't uh, let her listen to this episode. <laughs> and then, um, and then the last two things that are really anyone, anyone has access to, they're not quite as exciting, but the next one is just literally doing step sessions on a step 
So find a step that's about halfway up your shin or three quarters up your shin, set up with a move in front of you and just do stepping up and down for three minutes and a rest and then four minutes and rest and five minutes and just build that up. Um, or you can do strength training, but with lots and lots of repetitions. So instead of doing traditional strength training where we're straining the body to try and get a little bit um, stronger and doing sort of lower repetitions, this might be doing squats for 20 repetitions, 30 repetitions at a time and really chasing that muscle burn. Now there, you know, obviously those, the hill repetitions, the stair repetitions are probably going to be a little bit more fun and a little bit, maybe a little bit more effective, but all of them will do the job. And I've literally gotten people for ready for some really, really big mountains purely from, you know, doing some of those later options where they don't have any elevation. So it is possible. It just take, requires a little bit of thought, a little bit of creative creativity. Okay. Very good. A lot of, a lot of different options there. Now, what, what if you're limited in time? What if you don't have hours and hours each week to devote to this? What, uh, what are the, the important areas that you should focus on? Yeah, so this is, this is a really big one as well because, again, traditional hiking preparation programs, they assume that you're retired, basically, and you've got hours to pre- and, you know, go out walking, hiking, yada, yada, yada. Um, it really, this sort of question, I'm going to talk in sort of two ends of the spectrum. So one person who may, um, they may have a couple of hours a week to train, but they may not have multiple, multiple hours. And on the other side of things, someone who actually, which I do come across a bit, who they only literally have like, 15 minutes a day or something to fit in like, and that does actually happen. So the people who like might, you know, they might have a little bit of time to train, but they can't actually fit, you know, a huge amount of time in the training. Typically what I recommend is, is trying to start yourself off with three 30 minute sessions or three 45 minute sessions. If you do have access to that, which would typically involve two strength sessions. And then one of those hiking specific conditioning sessions, which might involve a stair session or just walking with a load of pack around the local neighborhood or, or something like that. Now, as much as you know, it'll be better to do more. That's pretty realistic to, for a lot of people to fit in, um, whether it's 30 minutes or 45 minutes or even 20 minutes if you really distract the time. And then trying to find sitting down with a calendar and say, okay, what actually times can I commit to go out hiking? And what times can I actually commit to go out walking? And you might be able to go out hiking once every month and just put that in the calendar, book that in and say you're going to do that. And then maybe you might be able to find an extra hour or two hours you know, somewhere in your week just to walk around the neighborhood or something like that. Now that's sort of someone who's got a bit more of a flexible schedule and, you know, they can fit that in. If you're in a situation where you're like, all right, look, you know, that sounds awesome, but I'm working a hundred hour week. You know, I've got this hike coming up. How do I get ready? Which does happen. Um, then you got to get a bit more creative. So typically, you know, what I'd recommend here is, you know, obviously fitting in walking where you can. So if you can fit in a 10 minute walk each morning with a pack on your back, if you can fit in a 10-minute walk, you know, going up and down the stairs at lunch, you know, they're not as great as an hour, but it's doable. But then you want to think about, okay, what can I fit in during the day? Just random exercises, which may help me here. So, you know, it, I've had people literally in the middle of board meetings doing calf raises while they're, you know, hanging out and they're just doing, you know, working on that. I've had people who've gone out for their, you know, they said, look, every, every 55 minutes, I'm going to have a little break. They duck out to the back room, do 10 squats, do a stretch and then get back into work. You know, those little things, they sound dorky, but you know, in this situation, you probably do need to consider them. And then this is also the situation where it's probably worthwhile trying to source something like an exercise bike or something like an elliptical or something, and then doing some more higher intensity sprint work on that stuff. Now, this is the type of stuff I don't typically recommend to hikers because it's not super, super relevant 
for you know hiking you're not working at those massive high intensities as much as the fitness industry loves to push it these days it's not something that's relevant for most hikers but if you literally only have 10 minutes a day to train getting on a, a stationary bike and doing 30 second sprints 30 second rest and repeating that for 10 minutes that's going to get you you know some decent benefits during that time so you do need to get a bit more creative when you're in that more hardcore extreme area but if you're sort of someone a bit more flexible you know three sessions a week with hiking and walking where you can that can be pretty good too yeah now you, you've mentioned a few times about uh, getting out with the, the pack on your back uh, are there are there specific training exercises to kind of deal with that extra weight on your back i know that uh, you know it when you first get out there on a, on a long, long hike, the, the first few days, man, the, the back is the back and the shoulders are, are pretty sore. What, uh, anything we could do to kind of prepare for that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, with that one, again, everything's a three step, three step with me. You've got, you got a system. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. That's it. So first again, strength training that goes into everything, getting strong is going to make it more comfortable. You know, that's pretty self-explanatory. The other two things is, with your walking, with your hiking, as most hikers are pretty aware of, um, you know, slowly building up your pack weight. That's pretty common sense and slowly building up to what you're expecting in your training walks or in your training hikes, if you're doing them and slowly step by step. That's pretty common sense. But then the third thing that I like to include is what I call overloaded pack training in the sense of we might not have enough time to go out hiking or longer walks to expose ourselves to, say, you're carrying a 15 pound pack or something like that. We might not have time to go out and expose ourselves to that and get comfortable with that. It just might not fit into our life. But what we can do, if we can find 40 minutes or 50 minutes or 60 minutes in our week, once a week, we can expose ourselves to more than that load and we can get our body used to, uh, used to moving more than that. So maybe 20 or 25 pounds or 30 pounds in this shorter period. And that's going to help out feel more comfortable when we're on the trail and expose our body to forces so we can adapt and get stronger and mitigate the risk of injury or pain by exposing yourself to more of this. So typically how I work with my hikers and then we have a little sort of step-by-step of of doing this is in the first weeks of prep, if we're doing three or six weeks, I'll literally just ask them, load up your pack, go walk around the local neighborhood for 45 minutes. Um, Each week you're going to add a couple of extra pounds or four extra pounds, depending on, you know, how strong you are, how confident you are. And slowly but surely we're going to build that up, build that up, build that up, build that up. Um, And that's going to get a lot heavier than our expected pack weight. Once we've sort of done that for a little while, obviously it gets a bit boring. We want to mix things up a bit. That's when we start to incorporate the same pack weight, but start to incorporate some type of elevation training. So whether it's on the hills, whether it's on the stairs, whether it's stepping up and down on a step, whether it's in the gym or the stuff I was talking about before. And again, exposing the body to be able to do these things with more weight on your back. And you might only do this for half an hour or 40 minutes, but again, it's going to be really, really beneficial. But put those three things together, the strength training, the standard hiking, building up, and the overloaded pack training. And those three things really do come into effect to make you feel much more comfortable when you step out on the trail with your full pack load. That is brilliant. The overloaded pack. So instead of a six pack, I'm going to put a case, a full case in the, uh, in the backpack. That's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. The, the best the best uh, little story I've got on that was during lockdown over here, um, I had a lot of my clients doing um, loaded pack walking because a lot of people restricted to a five kilometer radius um, during our lockdowns. Um, and one of my clients, as her method of overload, she was walking to the bottle shop and walking back to get her booze. So she'd walk with an empty pack, she'd fill up and walk home. 
But as the lockdown extended out, extended out, she was drinking more and more alcohol every single week. So every single week she was putting more and more weight in that pack. And as much as this probably wasn't the healthiest thing, but, uh, but it was a cool way to just to reflect, you know what, that's a good way to do it. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> not sure if the, if the benefits outweighed the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the drawbacks there. So yeah, maybe not. <laughs> All right. Hey, my listeners know I like to throw in a, an impromptu top five list. Uh, we'll get to this point in the, in the episode. And I would love to have a top five best exercises for hikers. What do you have for okay. us? Oh, I love this. Okay, here we go. So number one, absolutely every single hiker in any way, shape or form should be doing, no matter how strong or how, how weak, um, you should be doing some type of the step down exercise that I mentioned before. Now, if you're super, super strong, you can make this step down very, very high and it can be really, really challenging. If you're not so strong, you can make it very, very low. But either way, every single hiker should be doing that. That's number one by a long, long shot. Number two, um, I love single leg deadlifts. Now, typically deadlifts are something a lot of people know, but they can be, if not done well, they can have a bit of room for error and a lot of people have bad, had a bad experiences with this type of exercise, hurting their back or whatever. Single leg deadlifts are doing the same muscles, but it just mitigates a lot of the risk. Even if you do it wrong, you're never going to hurt yourself. Um, and it's really, really relevant for stability and balance for hikers. So that's number two. Um, number three is uh, glute bridges, whether it's a, a glute bridge with a weight or body weight or a single leg. Um, this is a really fantastic exercise for the glutes or the bum muscles. Um, it can be loaded up quite effectively and it's really, really beneficial and really, really handy. Um, and I always get my hikers doing one way, shape or form of that. Number four is an exercise called dead bugs, which is a really, really fantastic core exercise. Now, most people, when they think about um, core training, they think about sit-ups, crunches, maybe some planks, sit-ups and crunches. You know, they're so old school. <laughs> they went out 20 years ago, but people still use them. Planks, we've all done a million of that's, them. They're really, sold, really great. It's sold 20th century. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And um, the planks, they're great, but you know, we've all done a million of them. They get pretty boring. The dead bugs are really, really effective at developing a certain type of core stability, super, super effective for hikers. You can progress it, make it really, really challenging or make it very, very easy. And every single one of my hikers are doing one shape, way, shape or form of that. Um, and then the final one is the typical step up, um, which a lot of hikers know and love. Um, but, but for me personally, I like to use the step up, but challenge the weight a little bit. So we're not doing... 20, 30, 40 repetitions all the time. We might do periods of that, but also do periods of maybe doing five or six or seven or eight repetitions with a bit of a heavier weight. And that can do really dramatic things to helping you on elevation um, if you, you know if you do it right. And I absolutely love that. So there's my top five. If you just threw those together and didn't have any more thought around it and just did that for six weeks before a hike, it'll probably get you a long way, I think. Fantastic. Now I recognize number one and I recognize number five but I wrote down all of them so I can Google, Google and find out what the other ones are and how to do them. So thank you so much. That was awesome. No, no, no. Get around it. All right. Hey, Coach, you know where we are? Where are we? We are at that time of the episode where I ask you for your pro tip insight of the week. What can you, what can you share with our listeners? What bit of wisdom, uh, insight can you share that's going to make their next outdoor adventure that much better? Ooh. Okay, here's actually a really good one. And um, we've been talking today a lot about physical preparation. And, you know, this stuff takes a little while to get used to it and get ready for it. But sometimes people are like, yeah, that's sweet, but I want a quick fix. 
it's going to help me straight away and make a difference straight away. And, and this one tip is probably the simplest thing you can do on the trail to dramatically improve your performance. So your ability just to go and go and go and also your comfort and your mood. And that is when we're talking about the nutrition side of things is cueing yourself to have a little something to eat every single hour. Now, typically what we do when we're hiking is we might sort of say, we're going we're gonna to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We might have a few snacks in between, but typically we generally leave it pretty low, pretty late, and we sort of get hungry and then we snack and yada, yada, yada. But if you get a little, more pro- a little bit more proactive with this and you start to cue yourself to eat a little something every single hour, what this can do is can be really, really effective at delaying fatigue, improving performance, improving your comfort, and just making sure your energy levels and your, you know, your energy fuel stores are topped up and you're working at your best level. So this literally might involve you, you know, having a couple of jelly babies, you know, once an hour, or it might involve having a couple of pretzels or some dried fruit or whatever, but just something that's easy to digest, something that's tasty, but proactively having it before you get hungry and about, you know, a very small amount every hour that can make an immediate difference, whether it's for a day hike, an overnighter, a multi-day or a massive through hike. So that's a pro tip there. If you take anything out of this today, um, you know, that takes the least amount of effort, but it can have some phenomenal results. Excellent. Excellent pro tip. Thank you very much. So there you have it. That's it. Another bonus episode for season two is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with coach. I want to thank him for joining us this week. Coach, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? All right. So there's, uh, there's two good places to find me, depending on sort of what you, what you like. Like if you're into your podcasts and you love your podcasts and listen to this um, and you are interested in the physical preparation side of things, um, I do actually run a podcast entirely centered around that, which is called the Training for Trekking Podcast. You can find it on any platform. Um, and I go into uh, loads and loads of different topics around physical preparation, nutrition, mental strength, injury prevention for hiking. So if you're interested in that, check me out on the podcast. Um, alternatively, if, you want, um, if you're big into social media, um, probably the best place to find me where I put a lot of information, a lot of free information, is I run a free, um, free Facebook group, which is called the Training for Hiking and Trekking Facebook group. And inside there, I share exercise tutorials, I share extra tips. Um, I'm always happy to answer any questions and dive into subjects deep. So they're probably the best two places to find me. Um, and then you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at, at summerstrength.au uh, if, um, if that's uh, more up your alley. Okay, fantastic. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. Coach, I'm also looking for you to give our listeners your recommendation for a book a movie, a documentary, a website, or a YouTube channel that will keep them connected to outdoor adventures. We call this our adventure media recommendation. What do you have for us? Yeah, so I got I to really, I was having to think about this and then I thought of a, one of the most inspirational books for myself. And a lot of Aussies listen to this, they'll probably be familiar with this, but maybe not so much with the audience. So I thought it'd be a good share. It's a book called Breath by an author called Tim Winton, who's an Australian author. Um, who's absolutely amazing at what he does. Um, it's not so centered around backpacking or hiking, but if, it, if you're looking for outdoor inspiration, it's so, so beautiful. And it's talking about sort of a, a coming of age story around surfing and nature exploration. But it's like, when it talks about connection to nature, when it talks about physically challenging yourself, and it talks about just really, really just immersing yourself in these types of things and these challenges and these you know, these beautiful landscapes or whatever, 
it's beautiful and it gets you pumped up and awe-inspiring at the same time. It's absolutely beautiful written. And if you were looking for something to inspire you to get out and do things, you know, in nature or just keep you connected while at the same time reading some beautiful, beautiful writing. Um, yeah, it's such a good one. It's literally my favorite book of all time. So yeah, I reckon get around it if you've never heard of it before. Absolutely. Amazon, here I come. I'm going to order that thing tonight. Hey, so much great content tonight. Thank you so much, coach. I really appreciate it. That's a, uh, that's a wrap from the John Freakamere studio. Any shout outs to friends and family? You want to shout out to, to Allie or, or yeah. anybody else? Uh, I do want to give a shout out to Allie purely for the fact that um, I've never said on a, we, we got engaged a couple of months ago, but I've never said on a podcast or anything, shout out to my fiance. So I'm going to say shout out to my fiance, Allie, when you listen to this, I'm sure she'll get a kick out of that. So, <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> very good. Like I said, you're a very wise man. <laughs> All right. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck.